There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast. You like that inflection, Greg? Oh, I do. I do. Very enthusiastic. I love that. It is enthusiastic because we have over, well over 170 episodes out there. So we've been doing this a while. We have, yeah. Three or so years. But we've been doing something else a lot longer, Greg. We've been sitting in this chair, doing this job, working with retail and institutional investors on their portfolios and financial plans for, in my case, it's about 24 years. And in your case, how long? Well, about 27 years and 58 days, approximately. <laughs> approximately, yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. And how long have you been married for? I'm just joking. I can't remember. <laughs> but in those, what'd you say, 27? 27 years, 58, 58 days. days yeah. You've probably picked up a few things. You've probably, this is a loaded question. I already know the answer to this. The way you do things now is probably way different than the way you did them 27 years and 58 days ago. Absolutely true. So why don't we spend some time this episode talking about what we've learned over the past quarter century or so of being in this job. Great idea. Why don't you start us off? What's something you've learned, Greg? Well, interesting. Maybe I'll start just by telling a little story. So when I started 27 years, 58 days ago, the first thing we did was get sent to Toronto, where our head office was, for two months of training. And the training primarily involved making sure that we're aware of all of the fundamentals of the investing world and understanding different types of accounts and stocks and bonds, things that everybody should understand if they're going to be an advisor in this industry. But one of the things that stuck out for me was that they paraded all of the stock analysts in front of us over the course of the two months in which the analysts presented their top picks, their universe of coverage, maybe the utilities guy or the oil and gas guy and or woman. They would come in and tell us about all the research they've done and why they select certain stocks over others, et cetera, et cetera. I remember talking to our trainers at one point and saying, listen, so we've heard about all these stocks. How much money should an investor have to be able to actually buy stocks in a cost-efficient way? Because, of course, in those days trading costs were reasonably high. How much money do they need to have in order to build a diversified portfolio? And the answer came back something in the range of half a million dollars. Now, for a bunch of rookies starting out in the business, half a million dollars would have been a gigantic account. Well, especially in 1996? 1996. That's right. That would have been a very large account. And most new advisors in those days would start off if they had a fifty dollars to $100,000 account, it would have been pretty exciting. The interesting thing was that the answer to, well, what do we do with smaller accounts? The answer was, well, just find well-diversified mutual funds, maybe a Canadian fund, a U.S. fund, and an international fund, or maybe just a Canadian and a global fund, and some strip bonds. Build a nice portfolio that way that didn't require a lot of tinkering, and move on. And as advisors, you know, spend your time 
building up your client base and making sure that people are properly invested and, and move on. So the interesting thing was that the answer was there all along from day one. And yet it was very easy to get sidetracked by the excitement of stock trading. Because back in the 90s and 80s, before that, stock trading was something that was kind of fun. Like everyone thought, oh, wow, this is great. Wow, did you hear about this new stock? You know, let's go out and buy it for everyone. So one of the first things I learned after learning the answer in essentially my first two months on the job was that stock trading was a lot of fun, but only when your stocks go up. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody had a lot of fun stock trading when things would go down. And of course, as we've learned over the years, and we've talked about on this show, there's market risk and there's specific risk. Market risk means when the markets are going down, pretty much everything goes down, and that's definitely no fun. But what's even less fun is when you experience specific risk, and that's when your stock goes down while the market is still doing fine and everything else is going up. So again, early examples would have been Brex which of course went to zero, Nortel, which ultimately went to zero. And some of these names of stocks that people felt, well, I just have to have in my portfolio that went to zero. And that's no fun at all. That's a pretty good lesson that you learned way back then. That's right. Well, actually, did you learn it back then though? Many of us learn the same lesson over and over again. You need to be schooled over and over again until it really sinks in. Because at various times, there can be a real tendency to get excited, whether there are certain sectors like technology in the late 90s or marijuana in five, six years ago, etc. So I would say the first thing I learned is that stock trading is not fun in general and not necessary for many people. What about you? And you yep. came from a different background. Your background was in banking. Banking and then moving on to investment advisory, of course, 24 years ago or so. Same thing. I did the same training. We sat on the same bond desk. We listened to the same research analysts, did all that stuff. Back then, you thought your job was to pick stocks. You thought that's, right. that's what people were paying you to do. And I remember getting licensed. I got licensed during Stampede of all times of the year. And I remember it scared the crap out of me because I got licensed. And then I just thought to myself, I don't even know what stock to pick. And so you default to like the recommended lists, the guided portfolios, the things that the research analysts are promoting, the things that your firm are promoting. Maybe there's some ulterior motives there behind promoting certain companies. Maybe we shouldn't get into Ideally that. not. Ideally not. But I think that that has happened in the past. So for me, it was not getting caught up in the shiny objects. And so that started off with stock picking, but it evolved to other things. You'd start hearing the things like, hedge funds, how the ultra wealthy people really benefited by investing in hedge funds. And you and I have talked about hedge funds over the years and how hedge funds to us are just really more of a fee gathering tool than anything else. And most people don't really do well in hedge funds. And you'd probably be better off in that well diversified mutual fund basket versus that hedge fund with a performance fee kicking in. So that's a shiny object that came and went in my eyes, but there's other things you already mentioned, like stock picking, certain sectors like the weed stocks, as you mentioned. That was a real thing a few years ago. Sure. Look at that now, Greg. I mean- It didn't work out too well. It worked out really well for about six months. That's right. And since then, it just hasn't. But that's no different than other shiny objects like credit default swaps. That was one that obviously led to the global financial crisis. That's right. Well, back in the day, it seemed like 
these were no brainers. These were the shiny object to own. And how did that work out? Not so great. And not so great for things that actually came with credit ratings that were of the highest credit quality. Preferred shares rated P1, which puts them on at that time, the same level as bank preferred shares or bond credit ratings of double A. Triple A in some cases. So yeah, it's certainly easy to get distracted by those kinds of things. Which actually leads me to not get distracted by the newest shiny objects that exist around us. There's private equity, private debt, hearing a lot about those things these days. The reality is that most private equity fund managers kind of get market returns or less. Maybe you'd just be better off in that well-diversified mutual fund still that you mentioned. Well, that's right. The other one that's come up, not so much this year, but last year, is crypto. Everybody thought they needed crypto a year ago. That's right. Now you don't hear about it as much, but it is just the newest shiny object, would you say? I would. And one of the things that brings up for me and something that, again, I've learned over the years is that some of these things, when you imagine the future, you make guesses or predictions as to what's going to be important in the future. And I think I've talked about this before, you know, back when I started in the mid 90s, everyone was talking about the aging baby boomers and how the need for extended health facilities, extended care was a company in that industry. But nursing homes, private nursing homes, assisted living, how that was going to be the thing of the future. And people were jumping on board with those kinds of stocks back in the 90s. And it was exactly the right prediction but it was 20 years too soon, yeah. you know, because the baby boomers at that time were in their late 50s, early 60s, and it would be another 20 years before all of a sudden the demand for that kind of living arrangement was really important. So you could be right and wrong at the same time. And by making those kinds of predictions, you could, again, run into trouble. What's something else you've learned? Another thing that I learned was just what is the role of fundamental research? And so we've talked about this in the past, fundamental research. Well, looking at the fundamental company parameters of an individual company that you might be interested in investing in. And so that's generally the purview of investment analysts and who dissect a company's balance sheet and income statement and talk to management and then try to make predictions about the direction of the company and the likelihood of positive earnings growth and therefore stock price improvement. These meetings kind of cracked me up a little bit because those companies call in the analysts and give them their corporate guidance on what they think their profitability will be for the year. And then the analysts take back that data and they construct some sort of model. Exactly. And listen, there absolutely could be a role for that. But in many cases, I guess number one is, A, it's not the role of the advisor. As you say, Our clients are not hiring us to analyze and pick stocks for them because, frankly, we might not do that very well because that's not our job to pick stocks. Our job, as we've learned over the years, is to develop financial plans and estate plans for them that create a picture of what their future would look like from a financial standpoint and then build portfolios to help them to achieve that. So it's certainly not the role of the advisor. It's not the role of the investor. Most investors, and many times you'll be talking to someone and say, well, I've been doing some of my own research. I think I found a company that I want to invest in. Well, you know, what's the nature of that research? What's your background? How prepared are you? How equipped are you to do fundamental research? And some are. Some people maybe can do some of that, but it's not the average investor. And the third thing is that even all that fundamental research might be of limited value 
given the number of people that are now doing it. And we've talked about this when we talk about Benjamin Graham, who was the father of fundamental investing. He himself said back in the early 60s that it may be of limited value now because there's so many people doing it that the price of a stock will then be reflective of all of these analyses. And so you don't get a leg up. When he started doing fundamental analysis in the 30s and 40s, nobody else was doing it. So he had an advantage over all the other investors out there. Now that everybody's doing it, the advantage has been what they call arbitraged away. And the trading price of a stock is the fair price based on all of the people that have done that analysis, perhaps. That's actually a great point because I don't know if many people know this, but Benjamin Graham was a professor at, was it Columbia? Columbia. And his student was Warren Buffett. Correct. And Warren Buffett is now one of the wealthiest people in the world based off of his acquiring companies over the years. But so if you had Benjamin Graham, the what do they call it? The father of value advice. Value investing. Value yeah. investing, who was the prof to Warren Buffett, one of the wealthiest people in the world. And Warren Buffett now, his instructions upon his death are that I think 90% of his estate is to go into the S&P 500 index. That's right. So that's quite an evolution from stock picking. It is. And again, not to berate people that do fundamental analysis. In fact, they probably help to keep the market efficient in some way. But I think the point is that it's of limited value to individual investors and individual advisors like ourselves, and that our time is much more valuable if spent going through planning exercises and making sure that everyone is clear exactly on what their goals are. And so the point being is that fundamental research is not the most important thing. I'm going to jump in here on some big ones, Greg. If stock picking is not the job and fundamental research arguably doesn't work that well, neither does technical analysis, by the way, which we haven't talked about, what does work? And I think what everybody is looking at is what's going to change over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. But the answer should be, what's not going to change? And the answer to that is fear, greed, risk. Those things aren't going to change. So if I've learned anything over my 24 years, not quite 27 years and 58 days, focus on things that work and ignore everything else. So you already kind of mentioned one of these things being diversification. You need to diversify away some of the risk of specific companies or specific investments. But the big one that kind of goes with that or correlates with that is asset allocation. How much risk should you actually have in your portfolio? And that's driven by how much is in bonds and how much is in equities in diversified holdings. That asset allocation accounts for something like 92% of the variance of your portfolio's return. That's a real number. We didn't make that up. And by the way, that's a real number that's been around for about 40, 50 years now. Yeah, but I feel like in the last few years, it's become more relevant. Well, maybe just in my eyes, actually, now that I think about it, because we're still, as I say, we still have all those shiny objects around us that are going to distract us. So focus on things that work, ignore everything else. And you already mentioned this is like, have a financial plan. So in order to know how much risk you need to take on in your portfolio, you need to know how much risk you need to take on. And the only way you can achieve that answer is by doing some analysis. And that's based on the concept that, well, people probably shouldn't take more risk than they need to. The downside of risk is what gets everybody. The risk is two-sided. There's upside risk and there's downside risk. Upside risk, nobody complains about hey, you know, I was only expecting a 5% return and I got a 10. That was a lucky break for me. 
but the risk, the downside is what everybody is concerned about. And so if there's downside risk with every asset mix choice, then having a plan allows you to decide, well, how much risk do I need to take in order to achieve my goals? And we've had this discussion with many clients that, hey, you don't need to take any risk if you don't want to, because you've made it. Your goals are met with your current assets. You won't run out of money. There'll be money to leave for your children, et cetera, et cetera. The only thing you can do now is get it wrong, make a mistake. And that's another lesson that I would say I've learned over the years, which is the whole diversification story. But it's something that was based on a research paper that was written that I read probably in 1998 by a fellow named Peter Gibson, who was a quantitative analyst at Scotia McLeod at the time. And it talked about the time cost of being wrong, which basically says, avoid making big mistakes. Because if you make a big mistake, the time it takes to recover from that mistake will eat into any of your potential returns that you were hoping for to achieve your goals. And so it's okay to match the market. I've used this example before when we've talked about running a marathon. The average marathoner is average. You know, he'll finish in the middle of the pack. His time will be average. Or her time. Or her time. But if they trip, if they fall, and if they lose 30 seconds to a minute or more by that stumble, they won't catch back up to the middle. They will finish in the bottom half. And that's a mistake that time can't make up for because they have to run faster than average in order to just get back to where they were. The concept in investing is the same. If you make a big mistake, if you're down 10% when the market's up 10%, it'll take you years of above average performance just to catch back up to the market. So avoid big mistakes and hopefully you'll get some small wins. And the small wins over time will more than keep you in good shape. And I believe I was just reading something recently. You mentioned Warren Buffett. I believe that a lot of Warren Buffett's wealth comes from a few big wins and from avoiding big mistakes. So Warren Buffett doesn't get too many things wrong, but he spends a lot of time avoiding those mistakes and it therefore allows his wins to continue to grow and compound. For sure. I've been watching a fair bit of baseball these days as we're coming into the postseason here shortly. The best batters in the world that get paid tens of millions of dollars might hit the ball three out of 10 times. That means they're out seven out of 10 times. And it's kind of the same thing with stock picking or something like that. Getting back to that planning piece, it's not just the financial plan. You have to have an investment plan too. Owning a stock is not having a plan. But also the other thing to that is something that people don't talk about enough is how much are you saving? What's your saving strategy? You're not going to get rich by just investing in the stock market. You've got to be putting more money away and putting more money to work. And that's something I think that a lot of people have missed over the last 24 or so years. You hear about the odd scenario where somebody actually has become a millionaire, which these days, I guess, has become a billionaire. But by making a concentrated bet in something that paid off. Those stories, you hear about them because they're notable and they catch your attention, but they're incredibly rare. And most people have to do it the old-fashioned way, as you say. Have a savings plan, invest regularly, and let your money grow. Even average stock returns, which most people don't get because they either trade too frequently or whatever, but if you look at you know 8% returns, let's say, on the S&P 500 over the last 
100 years, I don't know, pick your time frame. That's a pretty good return when compounded, but it won't turn you into a millionaire if you don't have any money to invest. If you're not setting the money aside and having it there and leaving it alone to compound over time. So you have that financial plan, you have an investment plan, you've got to follow the plan, which may include some saving strategies, well, which should include, and you've got to ignore all of the headlines and all the shiny objects that are going to try to distract you. If you get that stuff right, you're probably going to be way further ahead in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Exactly. You know, it's interesting. You talk about avoiding the shiny objects. I mean, I mentioned that when I started in this industry, my portfolios for clients were diverse because I didn't have time to mess around. When you're a new advisor, your job isn't to analyze stocks. It's not even to spend a lot of time in noodling over portfolios. Really, what your job was to do was to, if you're going to succeed in the business, you have to have clients. The way to get clients is to meet lots of people and convince them that you know what you're doing and that you'll take good care of them and build these portfolios, which again, in those days, consisted of mutual funds, Canadian and international, and strip bonds, which was just a convenient way to buy bonds in those days. And interest rates were in the six to 7% range. So kind of like how they are now, actually. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so it was great. As my business grew and as I had more time to spend noodling over and and fiddling with portfolios, that's when things actually got a little bit worse, I would say, because it was a time of the technology bubble. It was the time of income trusts, which in Canada, as if you recall, I mean, every new company that converted to an income trust went up in value over a short period of time because they would pay out high dividends or high, we call them dividends, they're actually return of capital, but large amounts of cash flow So every new company that converted to an income trust, you know, was in high demand from investors and and advisors alike. And so as we had more time to spend on portfolios in those days when planning wasn't quite as important, you'd spend more time figuring out which new issues to buy, or maybe you would just buy them all. And the portfolios became concentrated in similar types of stocks, even if the income trusts were in different industries. They became concentrated as income trusts. And in the end, that didn't work out so well because the government shut down income trusts on Halloween of whatever year that was, 2006 or something like that. And that was it. And so all income trusts, regardless of the sector that the companies belong to, they all tanked because they were no longer going to exist. And so again, spending time on the wrong things was not beneficial. So you got caught up in the shiny oh, objects. very easy to get caught up, even as an why? advisor. Why would you do that, Craig? <laughs> like, why would you choose to get caught up in the headlines of the day? It's a good question. Part of it is human nature. We talked about behavioral finance. It affects advisors the same way it affects individuals. And when you're getting lots of support from the firm, because the firm in many cases is underwriting these new issues of newly formed income trusts, there's a lot of momentum and a lot of drive for it. And it takes a lot of knowledge. It takes an awareness of your own behavioral biases and discipline to say, you know what? We're not doing this anymore. And you and I did that in 2009. We did. We changed everything that we did in 2009 because of the global financial crisis, which required us to, as they say in business terms, pivot and actually get a better understanding of how the world really works. And we're much further ahead. Our clients are much better for it. In a weird way, I'm kind of glad the global financial crisis happened because 
it required a massive change. Maybe that's a good point to end on today. Sure. And next time we can pick up why that change was required and the human nature element behind it or... Well, it's good to know that over the last 27 years for me and 24 years for you, we've learned enough to actually cover more than one podcast. Yeah, I would hope so. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, then I guess that'll do it for today. Yeah. And we'll pick it up next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.